Hey, Mr. and Mrs. MP3 out there, this is Carl Franklin, and welcome to another incredible episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. I'm Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut, and in Atlanta, Georgia, Mr. Mark Dunn. Howdy, Carl. How's it going? What's up, y'all? Hey, we're doing great down here. It's kind of cold. It is? Yeah, man. It's What's freezing cold for outside. Atlanta? Is it 50? Yeah, that's, no, it's probably, I'd, <laughs> I'd imagine it's 20 degrees outside. Oh, okay. So well, that's on, really cold down here. It's on par for what we what we're experiencing up here too. That's right. It's a summer day for you guys up in the north. Nah, it's not summer until uh until the black flies come out. Then it's then we know it's summer. <laughs> I guess that's what inspired Stephen King to write all those horrible novels. Right? <laughs> in the snow too. You know, you can always tell people who've been in New England only for a couple of weeks or a couple of months or maybe even a year. You know, not quite a year. Because you're like, oh, it's snowing, isn't it wonderful? Let's go out and play in the snow. The snow is so lovely and beautiful and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, all right, just shovel it a few times and come back and we'll talk again. <laughs> we don't like snow. We get too much of it. So what's new with you this week, Mark? I uh, just got back from uh, Auburn University, taught a class down there last week. So that was uh, really a lot of fun. Now, that's not Auburn, Maine, which I, I would normally think of as Auburn. Where Where is Auburn? Auburn is uh, <clears throat> down in Opelika, Alabama. And wow. they have uh, a center for advanced technology that's just south of there between Opelika and Montgomery. Uh-huh. And I was down at the Center for Advanced Technology. How'd you land that gig? Uh, basically just gave them a call one day and said, hey, do you guys teach .NET classes? And they said, hey, we do. Huh. So, uh, you know, we worked it out from there. Oh, great. And uh, you emailed me a couple of comments. How many people did you have in your class? Had six people in that class. Give us uh, give us some of the comments you got on your evals. Well, I'd have to dig them out, but uh, they were they were yeah. good. They were incredible. Some Somebody said it was the best, you were the best teacher they ever had any, anywhere, anytime. Right, I, I paid him 50 bucks, and he, uh, uh-huh. he wrote a good eval. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> What were some of the, you know, someday, Mark, um, the listeners don't know this, but Mark, he's collected some stories about training, stories about working with training brokers and companies and customers and funny stuff that's going on. Someday you're going to share that with us, right, Mark? Right. One day we're going to have a, a show just about training. Right. And we'll we'll dig into all those stories. Some are very, very funny. Very funny and consistent, too, I might add. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's like the same story plays out over and over again. Well, anyway, um, some very interesting things happening this week in .NET land. The uh, regional directors and some other people got a memo from Microsoft that uh, we are now not to refer to the .NET framework as the .NET framework. We are to refer to it as the Microsoft Windows .NET framework. That's right, Carl. You know, I got that memo four hours it was said, said it was confidential. I got it at, at 8 o'clock the night before I was released to talk about it. Well, you know, mail servers. Yeah, I guess that's right. <laughs> so I, I went into my class the next day and said, hey, I can now talk about this. <laughs> I've been holding on to it for, you know, four hours. Yeah. <laughs> They're really not trying to make a big deal out of it, and it is a subtle change. But I think what Microsoft is trying to do is combat the effects of .NET confusion, sort of like a like Hi-Fi was in the 70s. You know, well, my watch is Hi-Fi, and my suspenders are Hi-Fi, and 
you know, so .NET, ooh, what is that? So they're trying to clear up some confusion around what .NET is and what it's not. And um, uh, we're not to refer to the entire thing as simply as .NET anymore. Also, the .NET Compact Framework is now the Microsoft Windows .NET Compact Framework. And then in subsequent references, you can just say the Compact Framework. So uh, we uh, on the RD list had some strong opinions about this. Uh, you know, as as you know, we're very sensitive and apologetic for Microsoft to our customers for sort of not getting the marketing message right. And uh, some of us feel that you know this is going to further confuse things. But we'll see. You know, they uh, as as we were told, they spent a lot of time and thought and effort went into this, and uh, they think it's going to help clear up the confusion so i i hope so hope it does right i mean i i just don't understand marketing to me it's all code right you know i, I just want to get a good development tool and write some code and me i'm too. happy so our, our guest tonight uh well that wasn't a very good segue was it <laughs> i like to write code so let's talk <laughs> speaking of code let's bring on michelle that's right it's ladies night tonight <laughs> well hi Did hi you michelle bring me a rose <laughs> This actually started, uh, I started thinking about having you on um, a, a long time ago, actually. And I have a list. We have a list of people who we want to get on and who also want to get on. And we try to accommodate them. But um, when we were talking with Ken Getz before the taping of his show, he said, you know, I got to hand it to you, Carl and Mark. You guys have cornered the market on middle-aged white males. <laughs> And I looked through the roster and I said, well, damn, <laughs> you know, that's right. Uh, what are we going to do about that? So we sort of bumped you up the list a little bit uh, so that we wouldn't look so chauvinistic that uh, that people would be not listening anymore. So aren't you glad that's why you're here? I really appreciate that. Actually. As the token woman? So I originally, I guess I had thought it was because you remembered you wrote the foreword to my book many, many years ago, but apparently we'd forgotten it. Hmm? No, of course I remembered that. Now, which book was that? The book was uh, Instant Visual Basic Animation, written in 96 for Rocks Press. And actually, I still am very, very proud of that book because I, I, I do believe that all of the you know, underlying fundamentals of the book still apply today with the Win32 API, but unfortunately, because Visual Basic is uh, labeled as VB4, then 5, then 6, it, uh, it certainly, you know, outdates the book itself. Well, I think it's an awesome book, and you're, you're a brilliant writer, and I'd, I'd like to see you write more books, actually. I'd like to write more books, Carl. I I'm hope working you do. on that. And between no, the actually, publishers, I've been I... kind of playing tag with a few publishers in the last year, and uh, usually, because my schedule's so tight, I fear the commitment for those horrible deadlines. So I, I've been writing actually a book of my own without getting hooked up with a publisher yet. Yeah, you know, that happened to me too on the last .NET uh, yeah. internet book. Um, I just, you know, it was bad timing, very bad. And, and now that my schedule has cleared up a little bit and I've done some of the things I want to do in that time frame, I'm, I'm beginning to write it. <laughs> well, what is it like? They want a chapter every two days or something? Yeah, it wasn't that bad, but I was... No, I know. Still, you're under pressure. It's, it's difficult challenge. to write. It's a challenge. Oh, yeah. Any, anybody can hammer out 50 pages a day. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But will it be cohesive or will it be just uh, blabber? Right. Well, let me, let me uh, introduce you, if you don't mind. This is Michelle LaRue Bustamante, 
And I knew you when you were just Michelle LaRue. Congratulations on your marriage. What was Thank it? You. Eight and nine years ago now? Actually, no, no about four and a half years. Oh, good. Uh, Michelle is an associate of iDesign Incorporated, which uh, also Juval Lowy is part of that group as well? Yes, he's the principal and founder. Okay. And uh, she's an internationally known speaker and author. As she was mentioning, she has written a, a great book for VB4 called Instant VB Animation. Uh, since then, and, and I did write the foreword for that, but since then, uh, she's been doing a lot of uh, .NET training, high-end corporate consulting, and uh, her expertise is in graphics and imaging, com, high availability internet applications, uh, enterprise applications in VB, C++, Java, J2EE, and C-sharp.net. You can see her speaking at conferences like VS Live, Dev Connections, Software Development Expo, and some European uh, shows as well, Web Services, XML1, .NET 1, and SDGN. She is a member of INETA, the International .NET Association Speakers Bureau, and uh, that's a pretty impressive uh, list of stuff. Well, you can always make longer lists. I think we've narrowed it down. One of the things I really love about your writing is it's funny. It's very, very funny. And and not just funny for the sake of funny. I mean, it's obvious that you're no slouch and you know exactly what you're doing. And uh, in that book, I was especially impressed the way that you took all that really what is amounts to dry, you know, material, especially for a VB programmer, and made it really palatable. I really enjoyed graphics, actually. I worked with that for a good five years in the early part of my career. And I tell you, graphics is probably still one of the sexiest types of programming you can do. Yeah, it's fun. It's interesting. It's fun. You know, you get to dig into some low-level bit twiddling and things like that. But right. um, unfortunately, you know, it's really hard to sell it yeah. at, this at this day and age. Yeah. So we all kind of diverse, uh, diverge into other areas. So what is this .NET dashboard? Oh, that's a new newsletter that I've uh, been forming for several months now, actually, and we're finally releasing the first issue this month in January. Uh, it's sort of a collaboration amongst many of us, including iDesign, including some of the people that I work with. I'm an advisor at UCSD, lots of instructors that I work with there. We teach all the .NET classes there. So really it's sort of uh, intended to be yet another newsletter, but I'm trying to gear it more as a code letter that really answers true problems, you know, and, and so a lot of it will be collaborative. People will write in and say, you know, I'm having trouble with this, and maybe instead of answering it in a news group format, we can answer it with an article that gives some background on the issue and, and that sort of thing. So it's, it's new, very, very new, but um, definitely excited to get that moving. That sounds great. Yeah. What is your experience with Java, J2EE? Well, in my career in the last two and a half years, uh, I spent quite a bit of time uh, with J2EE development because, um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, you know, through the last 10 years or so, along with doing a lot of speaking and writing and, and training in Microsoft products, which was my forte for many, many years, uh, I also have always worked for a, a company full time, so I really had no life. It's amazing I actually married somebody. So uh, basically, you know, in the last two and a half years, one of the company's startups that I worked for, I 
built the development team, and at the time we were looking at what technology to use, and they'd already picked the Unix platform with Java. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, this will be interesting. I haven't led a team in this before, so I'm going to dive in feet first and get some background and really see what the other world lives like. Mm-hmm. So while I kept all of my, you know, Microsoft technologies up to speed in my teaching and writing and so on, I also dug in and actually hands-on did some of the development work, even though I was actually an executive in the company, CIO, um, doing a lot of the web services in Java, working, and we were an application service provider, so that also means we're a 24 by 7 operation, hosting our own equipment, data, Uh warehousing, um, high availability, looking at hundreds of thousands of transactions a month, at least in the peak periods. So, and if not higher, you know, per day in the future. So we really had a lot of interesting challenges building that. And what I enjoyed is getting the exposure to, to Java hands-on because I've always been a Microsoft person. And I wanted to really see why is there such religion, you know? Right. It's pretty clear that there's a ton of religion over on that side. So why is there? Well, and that's a loaded question, you know. Um, I think that that really, if you think about Java compared to um, other disciplines, because it's open source, it's sort of like this elite club. And people feel very honored, you know, to be part of it because of that. And Mm. a lot of them, of course, because of all of the issues Microsoft has gone through with, uh, you know, monopoly suits and so on, they just have, you know, sort of a, a... I guess, an adversity towards doing anything related to the company. And this is a really true feeling that I've noticed amongst many people in that world. And I think that's wrong completely because we really should be looking at what's the right tool for the right job ultimately, but that's a separate discussion. Um, If you look at the religion, I think a lot of it comes from that, and it also comes from uh, folks feeling like, you know, they're contributing because it's an open source community. Uh, they feel that uh, the bar is a little bit higher for mm-hmm. entry. Mm-hmm. And we should talk about that, too, because you know it is somewhat true that the bar has been raised for entry into the Java world. But why is that? It's because there's hardly any documentation. You, know, you have to go in, download your own you know, latest build for Apache or, or for the, the, the latest release of Axis. Right. Or, or some other Java technology. And the only documentation you virtually get is whatever you hear on the news groups, whatever articles you can somehow find, and then the Java docs. And the Java docs don't really say anything. You know, hmm. what is a string? Hmm. Oh, put a string in there. Okay, great. Well, okay, so how do I do that? You know, it doesn't explain things. So it's very interesting. I, I spent a lot of time in that world, and I felt like a seasoned developer, which I am, but... I've also been used to the Microsoft environment where you go into the IDE, you're looking for a keyword, right there you can go find the answer to the question and figure it out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, generally you can be an advanced programmer and still have a question. You go into the Java world and literally you can spend days just getting your environment set up. Yeah. So it's incredible. What does that say about productivity, though? It it says a lot about productivity or lack thereof. And, And, you know, I hate to you know, go against, I guess, some of the thoughts of some of my very good friends who happen to be Java lovers. But the bottom line is, if I was a manager starting a company, I would not be looking at it. And the reason I wouldn't be looking at it is because I've seen firsthand how long it takes me, somebody who's, you know, been developing for years and years and is, is fairly sharp and quick, and I think to myself, okay, well, if it takes me a while, how, how 
fast as a junior going to come up to speed? Right. You know, and, and I'm not saying you can't, but it's just why put that extra effort in when you can hit F1 and get the answer and worry about the real business issues, worry about the objects you need to design, worry about the architectural challenges. How would you compare the uh, communities in terms of support, you know, forums or websites or, uh, you know, how-tos, books, all that kind of stuff? There's, you know, there, there are a lot of Java community news groups. Um, there's a lot of articles being written, but I just find it not as accessible. Yeah. So it's not so much that there isn't the community, but there's also a bit of a snobbery, too. If you listen or look on the, the news groups, you're going to see newbies coming in, and they'll say, oh, I have a newbie question, and they'll throw in some, you know, how do I set up access? I'm having a problem with RealPath or something right. like that. And And the attitude that comes back sometimes <laughs> is a little bit sort of, you know, haven't you been reading? Right. Haven't you read the news group already? So there's a bit of a barrier there. They expect you to be advanced walking in the door, and, and that's okay, but I think that what that does is it removes the likelihood that somebody first starting out can get up to speed quickly. That's right. It reminds me of some other communities I've seen on the net that are small because of that. I mean, you know, it's only human nature, I think, that when you become sort of master of your domain, so to speak, that you... Uh, you know, you want to stay on top for a long time and you don't, you know what I'm saying? So by empowering those people around you, you're sort of uh, writing your own death sentence. And I don't mean to say that, you know, this is, this is a necessarily a good way to think. I'm just saying that it's sort of human nature. Well, yeah, Taken that's reality. That, that is the way people are going to think. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, that you can expect some of that. But the other thing in the Java community that, and it's not just Java, you have to really kind of pair that up with, with Unix as yeah. well. And if you think about it, a lot of the myth and mystery behind Unix and Java is that, um, you know, it's more secure. It's a better environment uh, with less holes in it. You know, they compare Apache to IIS and they talk about all of the problems IIS has. Yeah, I know that's bullshit. And, and and the truth is that that it's it's not so much that one is less secure than the other. It's that if you think about it, IIS comes with all kinds of tools that automatically. I mean, I can install an IIS server and get up to speed even if I'm a beginner. Right. I can I can get a static IP at my home. I can install you know Windows Server, put IIS on there, and drop you know the .NET framework and an ASPX page, and I've got a website. Is it secure? Well, maybe not, because I haven't learned yet how to secure my web server. But you have to spend the time. But the problem is the tools in Microsoft make it so easy for you to just set it up and get it going that the defaults are sort of putting you in danger. Right. And they're changing that, actually, with the latest release of Windows.NET Server. They're going to change so that um, uh, IIS defaults to not being installed and things like that so hmm. that you can't suddenly find yourself in trouble. The other thing to remember, too, is that uh, IIS is under much more of a microscope than uh, because it's the dominant platform, more mm -hmm. people use it than Unix is. And, um, you know, the old car on Gary's homepage? Mm -hmm. Well, Gary uh, Wisniewski is a Unix guy now completely. and uh, But he was both Windows and Unix. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we got hacked, and he's an expert, 
you know, and he set up a, a web page, the web page for us, and the website got hacked. For, you know, it's an Apache website, and it was a method that made him say, "Huh, that's pretty clever." Just because, and nobody heard anything about it. Nobody ever heard anything about, you know, the the problems with Apache or whatever. <laughs> that it's an insecure environment because you know somebody found a, a weakness and exploited it. And also, the open source community will protect that. Yeah. But you know, I think uh, uh, even a, another way to look at this is the simplicity. Okay, the Unix operating system is a very uh, uh, lightweight system. Its only job is to be an operating system. It doesn't have tools and fancy stuff and installed for that could provide holes, for example. Yeah. And the same goes for Apache as a web server. So in that, number one, you have to know more to be able to administer them because it is pretty terse. It's all command line work and so on. And not that anybody should be afraid of that, but it, it raises the barrier to entry. Right. So what happens automatically is folks that are you know Unix admins think, well, you know, I obviously know a lot more than an NT admin could ever know. But it's not so much the truth, because if you look at the higher end of the bar, maybe the low-end barrier to entry is lower for, uh, you know, an NT admin. You could be fresh out of school and probably do some level of administration, but you won't be good yet. Right. But at the high end, you know, the experts are at par in both worlds. Yeah. And so the difference is there's just a smaller range on the Unix side because it's terse and it's prohibitive for, you know, new new programmers to enter. Well, I remember when I first looked at Unix, uh, I've never really done much with it, but it looked to me to be a big collection of little uh, utilities that I had to access through the command line. And I just thought, you know, I, I don't have time to learn what all these utilities do. And, I you know, I was used to dealing with Windows. Right, and we get spoiled coming from the Windows environment, moving into an environment like that. So it's not so much that, you know, I love the command line, you, you know, for C-sharp, for example, um, but for C++, I would have never used the command line. I would have always been in the IDE. I think once I escaped from DOS, I, I just felt like I was free and didn't <laughs> want to go back. No more. It's productivity That's tools right. too. I mean, what is really the bottom line for a, for if you own a company? You have to think of the company as it's your money, right? And as soon as you look at it from that perspective, you have to think, okay, productivity is important. I got to ship product. Uh, obviously, all of the the basics, you know, security, um, availability. So if we're talking about application service providers in in our discussion today, you want high availability. You want security. You want to be able to scale quickly. You want to make sure you pick, um, you know, a product that will have support into the future so you're not going to buy some obscure web application server that, that won't be around in five years because the company went out of business. Um, and you want your developers to be productive. Well, if you look at, again, Java versus .NET, and I can say from firsthand experience, yes, they have IDE environments. You know, there's JBuilder, there's Forte. And then, of course, when you take the J2E platform, you're plugging that into an application server. So you're looking at WebLogic or WebSphere from IBM, and you can't do integrated debugging and development, at least not without spending, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of hours figuring out how to do it, because it's not well documented how to do it. There's probably a handful of people out there that have figured that out, but in the world where I was working, Nobody bothered. They just did print output statements to figure out where their bugs were. I mean, how efficient can that be? Right. 
and you go into .NET, and now we've got Server Explorer. We can go and and take a look at you know our databases, no matter what machine they're on, and connect through the network. We can uh, go ahead and build our you know ASP.NET applications, debug in page script and code behind, uh, and so on. I mean, you just the whole the, the list whole, goes on uh, and on. You know, when I first saw the Visual Studio.NET environment, I thought, here's an environment that a real programmer designed that has to do work every day because it's all about letting you do everything within one environment. Right. Okay, so you want some more high-level information about IT, about development as it relates to .NET? Check out newarchitectmag.com. They've got some incredible things online that I just recently discovered. One of them is a research page where you can search reports from over 3,500 leading IT vendors and over 60 top analyst firms. There's also a daily commentary uh, section, commentary and updates on current events and technologies. In the February 2003 issue, there's a, the, the feature story is about security, should you hire a hacker? And it's all about reformed hackers who want to lend a hand with your IT security strategy. Uh, also, there's a, an interview with Vint Cerf, who is the, uh, an internet pioneer that co-wrote TCPIP. This is a great resource, and it's, and it's free online part of the Windows Developer Network, just go to www.newarchitectmag.com and check it out. Now let's get back to our interview with Michelle LaRue Bustamante right here on .NET Rocks. We've talked about your firsthand experience as a CIO of this company. Can you give us any numbers in terms of, you know, we're talking about productivity in terms of... Um, the scale in a grand sense of the word, you know, how, what kind of project was this that you were working on, this Java project, and how long did it take, and mm -hmm. did you try .NET, and uh, do you have any comparable results, or, or what can you say about that? Well, what I, what I haven't done a comparable project personally with .NET, but just from talking with others who, um, we're talking about then an application hosted by the company that has large data warehousing needs, you know, okay. possibly hundreds of thousands of transactions. You're going to have tiered architecture with your web server, your application server, and then your database server in the back, possibly disk arrays, you know, that are managing, uh, you know, mirrored disks so that if one fails, you know, you've got failover on the data. Um, you've got failover between machines, so you've got redundancy at every level of the tier, and then possibly a complex architecture with, you know, firewalls and virtual uh, IPs behind that will help protect your, your system from, from hackers. So you get all of that put together and a lot of it's hardware, right? Yeah. And then you've got the software that supports it. Well, even just, we can compare two things, really. We can look at hardware uh, from the Unix side and the Java world and, and from the .NET Intel side, and we can talk about costs. Like, for example, how much does a Sun you know, enterprise server cost versus the new Unisys ES7000, which is the big, hot, new uh, 
you know, system that's kind of putting both IBM and Sun to shame at the moment in terms of cost for value. For Unix you know, it can machines. support up to 32 processors, um, and you know, the Sun equipment is anywhere from maybe the low end 3,000, which would be not something you would use at one of the main tiers. That would be sort of a, a load balancer or something. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have your you know, Sun E420 or E220, which is anywhere from twenty to $30,000. And maybe that's not including discounts, you know, if you've got some special arrangement or leaseback programs. Uh-huh. But this is expensive equipment. You could spend $500,000 just getting the product started. Just the hardware? Just the hardware and firmware, you know. So now some of the firmware is going to be used in the Windows world, too. But let's think about that. Now I've got to duplicate that environment on development and QA. Yeah. Because if I'm going to really deploy to a 24 by 7 operation then I need to know that QA mimics 100% production, right? Right. And I need to know that I'm not going to have problems, um, you know, if, if I need to, say, tear down one side of production to upgrade it, you don't want to take down all of production, right? Because then your service levels go to hell. Right. Because you need 99.9%, right. you know, availability if any serious institution will look at you to use your service. Um so, you know, that's, what, less than eight hours a month of downtime. So, so anyway, that's expensive on the hardware side. And then in terms of time to implement on the Java side, I would say you're looking at um, easily, you know, easily you could do it in, I would say, a little over half the time. So you're cutting in half your development time if you use you mean a tool using .NET? like .NET. Okay. Easily. And that's just based on... Wasting time looking for answers, you know, wasting time looking for bogus answers to how do I use this class when you haven't used it before, that kind of thing. Because let's face it, every new project opens a new door and you've got to look stuff up. Sure. So So anyway, I would say we've got some, some serious differences there. And so if I was running a business, now that I've experienced the other side... I'm having a hard-pressed time thinking now that .NET's around and now that we've got these great new, you know, Intel machines that that will support, you know, high availability and scalability. How do I how do I compete then? How do how do I justify the investment to the board of directors for a Sun installation? Right. You know, there's just no way. Now it used to be that you needed more PCs to do a web farm. Right. Than you would need for you know. Uh, a Unix box, a Sun box or something. So the other argument would have been, well, I need more administrators because it's harder to administer, you know, a very horizontally scaled deployment as opposed to vertically scaled where you've got fewer machines. Right. With more power. More power. Now we've got more power in, in, you know, the Intel machine, so we're able to compete against that. So now what's the argument? Well, also, I mean, what, you can get like a compact server blade for a grand. Right. And you just chunk them in a in a, in a box. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, it's really incredible the things that are changing now, and and I'm really interested to see what's going to happen there, because if you look at institutions in the financial services industry and say insurance industry, which is one of the industries I was just working in, um, you know, there's a lot of demand to cut costs. But there's also a lot of demand for the high availability and scalability, especially for large installations. Right. A lot of these folks have legacy equipment that is, is 
really in dire need of replacement in terms of upgrading their systems. Yeah. But they're not going to do it if they have to pay a ridiculous amount of money. So they're just spaghetti, you know, linking everything together with new servers. They're, they're building web services, you know, in front of something that hooks into a mainframe. I mean, it's ridiculous. Right. So now, if it's becoming more affordable to do a complete port of your application, because A, you can do it faster with .NET, because of the fact that it's just a great rapid development tool, and then B, because you can afford the equipment. Yeah. Now you've got a marketing pull. Hmm. And I think that one of the biggest problems Sun has, you know, in competing with Microsoft, even though really they compete with IBM on the hardware level, the problem they have with Microsoft is that they don't really support their software platform. It's open source. So although they are, you know, let's say the host of Java, they're not really you know, promoting it, they don't build the IDE tools, they don't build the integrated environment, and they say that that's better because it's, you know, open and you can put it on any platform and you can plug it into any application server. But the truth is, once you start leveraging application server um, specific components, you really can't port from one to another anyway. I mean, it's not as, you know, yeah. portable as people think or say. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. I, porting is a very, very difficult thing to do and yeah. is... Because you're uh, it, always going to use class libraries that are part of the application server environment exactly. that you're building it in, if it's exactly. WebLogic or WebSphere or Dynamo. And that that was very painfully obvious in the fact that Java applets failed miserably. Well, but you know there are there are initiatives to uh, to port .NET, uh, Mono, yes. Rotor that we've talked about. Yes. I mean, what? How do you think that's going to work? Do you think that'll be successful ultimately? I really do think so. And in fact, if there's a recent surge right now with the Mono Project in terms of people offering, you know, their services. And I, I read this actually in an article recently, but I also met the CTO of uh, Zimian, uh, Miguel, Miguel Diacesa. He's in Boston. And he's a very interesting guy and, and clearly really knows his stuff. He's had a, a long, you know, stretch working with open source projects, and then he moved to this one. And what they're really doing is constructing .NET for Linux and Unix, which is going to even further make things interesting in terms of people moving to .NET. Because even though Microsoft isn't directly involved with Simeon, um, you know, there's sort of like a, a love-hate relationship probably there. Um, they definitely want to help, but they're also not really looking forward to the competition on Unix, right? So right. I think that that what's happening is that people who know that Java's not maybe meeting all of their needs and people who know that people are, you know, heading towards .NET adoption, well, what is the one thing .NET is missing? And that is the true cross-platform capability, right? Right. So if you can have a C-sharp compiler that will work in a framework on a Unix machine or a Linux machine, and you can build your service and then license it to companies and say, hey, if you need to run this on Linux or Unix, that's okay. You buy your own hardware. Here's the software. It's going to work. Chances are, though, if you think about it, what the current version that works on Windows will probably have far more features than the version that will work on it. You know, it's, it's Unix counterpart. Just because I really doubt that the Rotor project, the Mono project, can keep up with Microsoft. I think Microsoft will always try to keep them one step behind. 
Sure. I'm sure that that is probably going to happen as well. But let's just say for some projects, and there may be a handful out there that will end up maybe not leveraging all of the cool tools, and they'll follow more of the standards. So the ECMA standards for C-sharp and the CLI, for sure. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, ECMA is not standardizing the .NET framework itself. That's where Mono comes in and says, well, I'm going to use the ECMA standards, but I'm also going to build a framework that will work on Linux yeah. and, and Unix, and they're going to do their best to, um, I guess, give the same feature set then that is available currently in, in .NET. And, and I think that they will accomplish that. The question is the rate of adoption. And I don't think it's going to be perfect, but what I do think is that maybe people won't be porting, but they'll be using .NET on Linux and Unix, and that's going to be interesting. Is it really in Microsoft's best interest to, to support other operating systems? If we think about how they generate revenue for a moment, uh, developer tools are probably not even a blip on the radar. Uh, they're really about selling the office suite and selling operating system licenses. So, you know, do you, do you really think that uh, they're, they're going to give a lot of thought or effort to helping port.NET to another OS? No, they're not going to help. That's, I mean, they'll help to whatever amount they're willing to to keep friendly right. in the industry. Um, and they don't have to help, but I think what's nice about this project is that they're doing it without the help, and they're proceeding regardless. Now, like I said, a complete a situation where you can actually build a full, robust application in Microsoft.net and then literally take your source and throw it into the Mono project and have it work, that, per, that level of perfection we, we've yet to see because they haven't right. even released yet. They're talking about you know mid to late next year. So we'll have to see about that. But you know, I think that it's still going to be interesting times. I think that it's still going to increase the potential use for those that are open source lovers yeah. and have the religion that's in the Java world. Why wouldn't they go in and try this out? Why wouldn't they go in and, and look at C Sharp for Linux just because they've heard so many good things? I've even got Java developers that formerly were religious, who are now asking me questions about .NET. Uh, me too. And I think that's fascinating. And here's another thing that's missing. I mean, if you think about it, um, you when you're using J2EE installation, you typically need a robust application server right. to support that, whereas .NET is the whole package, right? And, you know, I know there are some free tools that come you know, as Java downloads that are part of the open source community, but really you're going to buy WebLogic, you're going to buy WebSphere, you're going to buy Dynamo, um, Silverstream. There's a whole number that support J2EE. And, you know, the real drawback there is these things are expensive. I mean, server licenses are 15 grand a pop, you know, client licenses, another grand a pop. Right. Um, incredible amounts of money. Michelle, when I first met you, you were... You were sitting in the lobby of some Hyatt or Marriott somewhere in a bar um, typing your book on your laptop. I just remember that very distinctly, that uh, here you are at VBits writing a book. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I remember the first time I ever saw you talk, and uh, I thought you were quite funny. And that was when you do were doing uh, your internet speech for Visual Basic Programmers, which was unheard of at the time. That's right. And I think uh, the thing that made me laugh the hardest was you got up there to do your demo, and you said, okay, I have this demo to show you. And it was almost like uh, Stephen Wright style, very dry. 
I have this demo to show you, and it's going to work. And everyone just broke out into laughter. And then, of course, you did this weather demo or something where you actually, from your Visual Basic application, did a request and displayed the weather. Right. Uh, a satellite from photo. Satellite. Yeah. yeah. So That made uh, a big splash. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we were in the lobby. I was definitely working on my book because that was the whole, I need a chapter every two days or something. Right. Yeah, deadlines. I think I remember that V-Bet. So there was a storm approaching that That's night. That's right. Mm -hmm. And you could see the storm on the uh, the satellite image. And as it turned out, the storm came and blew out the power. And uh, some people uh, asked for their money back because the couple of sessions were canceled. Yes. Oh, my. Yeah. Hmm. Are you from Canada? I am. Did from Toronto, right? Out or something? Yeah, no, you said out a couple of times, out and about. And, and I I'm sort of remember you. Did you call Carl a hoser at some point? I, I don't remember. In fact, you know what? That's why when we were talking with, uh, when I met you, when Stephen Cramp was there, he's from Toronto. Yeah, he is. And uh, I think that's how we sort of started talking. That's, I think you're right. That's how it came up. I must have set out. But I've right. been in San Diego for 11 <laughs> years. I, I came here, um, you know, drove across the country on a whim and a TN visa. So every time you go home for Christmas and stuff, you know, your parents' house, you say, like, hey, give me some fruitcake, eh? Well, they say that, and then I say, like, you know, because <laughs> I'm in California, right? Right. Yeah. Actually, when I first moved here, I think the, the funniest thing to me was, um, well, I moved across the country. I got a job over the phone by, by sending my resume and a fax, and, and I literally had not met anybody. So I drove across the country with my U-Haul behind my Jeep in five days to start this job. And everybody in my family said, you are absolutely crazy. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. So I go to my job, and I'm very gracious. You know, thank you for this. Thank you for that. Oh, here's my office. Thank you very much. And then every time I said thank you to somebody, they'd go, uh-huh. <laughs> and I thought, how rude. These people do not like me one iota. And I went home devastated a couple of days in a row. I'm thinking, these people are... Because they didn't so say you're rude. welcome. They said, uh-huh. It took me a couple of days to figure out this is how people here, anyway, right. uh, respond to a thank you. Uh-huh. And I was wondering, what's worse, saying A at the end of every sentence or going, uh-huh, when somebody says thank you? They say it a little differently in New England. It's usually something like, blow it out your ass or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, that's right. I was just thinking, you know, you should be glad you didn't go to work in New York. That's <laughs> oh, right. yeah. Same to you, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite funny. Yeah. Yeah, good job, though. That was when I started getting into graphics. That was a great, great company to work with. So Awesome. Michelle, we, uh, we mentioned earlier that you had been involved in, in management and leading a team. Mm -hmm. That's something I, I kind of wanted to talk about tonight. Uh, tell us uh, you know, a little bit about how you put a team together, uh, what, what really drives you to select particular skills, and what are some of the challenges in, in being a, a project leader, a team leader? Well, you know, first I would probably start by saying probably the best way to start and build a great team is if you do it from scratch. Because one of the hardest things to do is to go into a company as a, you know, an executive or a manager who needs to take charge of a team that's already in place. Because there's usually, you know, some resistance to the yeah. change in management and so on. Um, but, you know, ultimately that comes down to people's personalities. And I think that when you interview people, one of the important things is not just to look at their skill set, but also really um, kind of get a sense for their reliability and likability as people. 
because you can end up with disastrous results if you you know hire people just for their skills but you have a couple of prima donnas over here and you know a, a couple of great you know programs over here but maybe they need some things they need to learn that kind of thing they're not going to get the support they need if people are just plain not nice and, right. and it really comes down to personality i think it's very important to pick people that are fundamentally good it just makes a world of difference in how smooth the development cycle can go. So, do you ever have any developers like drop a mouse down your shirt or something? You know, practical no, jokes. No, actually, not quite that. No, no, no. Ever do you know crazy glue your chair to the floor, things like that? Um, no, no. I had them put some uh, some cartoon snippets in my office a few times. Something about swearing. I think I was swearing a lot at the time. Oh. My career has sort of been mostly hands-on technical throughout, and, and really, that's 100% my skill set, but um, somehow I always ended up gravitating, because I'm a little bit meticulous, I don't want to say anal, um, into the management roles everywhere yeah. I've worked, and and then, of course, over time into the executive level, and, and it's been fun, but I always end up getting sort of, you know, the shakes after a while, because i got to write code, so... I literally, you know, in my last position as a CIO, went back into, in the last year of my time there, uh, before I went out independent this, this year, I started writing code again. I said, you know, I, I think I really should write the web services for Java because I, it's important. So I did that, and it was very good for me. But anyway, coming back to your question, um, you know, I think, you know, obviously the skill sets are important, but as you're interviewing people, sometimes you need to know what you don't know, too. For example, um, perfect example, I go into an environment where it's a J2E environment, Unix platform. Uh, I'm a Microsoft person. I don't necessarily know how to interview for a Unix admin. How do I do that? You know, And that's where you have to use wise choices in terms of maybe hiring consultants. I mean, how do you make sure that you make good choices? So maybe the best thing to do is to bring in consultants for short periods of time um, while you're interviewing and have them help you make the right choices uh, and that kind of thing. And, and I think that, that if you don't do that, you risk somebody um, sneaking in the door without the skills that you really, really need. Yeah. So things like that are important. Um, possibly, uh, you know, having the strength to let people go when maybe they aren't cutting it. How do you uh, deal with burnout? Because that is a big issue. I think burnout happens when there is attrition in in uh -huh. the group. I mean, and then that comes down to fundamentally what are the type of people you hired. If you hired people that just really like the work, and probably this last company I was working with um, was the best environment ever in the sense that everyone had such great camaraderie, hmm. you know, and they just wanted to learn new things and write good code. Yeah. If, if you have that, it's great. If you, I've also worked in environments where I've had people, um, you know, 5 o'clock, got to go, and that's okay if they're really still into the work and available when you need them. Right. But if they don't really love the work, then they're not going to want to be there when you need them either. So right. meaning maybe fundamentally programming is not their thing, even though they're good at it. Hi, this is Al Gore. Are you a VB programmer who's looking to further their career by communing with other VB programmers? 
well then you need to check out vbcity.com. Carl Franklin and Mark Dunn have donated their time to go up there and every day answer your questions on the VBNet forum. You may have a question about text boxes. You may have a question about lock boxes. You may have a question about multi-threading or asynchronous programming. Now, I have seen lots of forums in my day, and I haven't seen one quite as intense as vbcity.com. With sites out there on the internet like this one, visualbasic.net will be as strong as a lockbox. What would you say to, and this, I don't know what you're going to think of this question, but what would you say to um, uh, young people in college, particularly women, about getting into programming? It seems like it's a very male-dominated field. Oh, absolutely. And obviously there are some uh, terrific female programmers and mm -hmm. IT people, lots of them actually. What would you say to those people who are who are thinking to themselves, you know, should I get into programming right now? Should I not? What's the economy going to be like 10 years from now? Is, you know, is programmers, are programmers still needed? You know, I, there's a lot of them out of work, obviously. What do you think? You know, um, I think every job you take, whether it be in software, whether it be in medicine, whether it be, you know, who knows, whatever, accounting, uh, finance, that kind of thing, every job you take has a lot of work involved because you have to become a domain expert. Right. And I think that if you have an affinity for math or writing code, if it interests you after you've taken, say, one class, yeah. which is really what happened to me. I was an accounting finance major and I took a computer class and said, wow, this is great. Hmm. But, um, you know, if you if you feel that that's interesting to you, then the last thing on your mind should be, is there room for more people? It should be more right. like, is this something I really like to do? Because I'm a firm believer that there will always be room for great people in any career. True. So if you are intent on being great, then you will put the time in because you love it and because you want to be great if you're driven. And in terms of women, you know, I think that in the past it just really wasn't interesting to women. Mm -hmm. And I think that... Um, was that because of the schlubs that were dominating the field? Well, I was going to say, you know, <laughs> I don't want to be rude, but uh, I would say a few first few jobs that I had, there was definitely, you know, a little bit of that. Uh, Your uh, typical you know, greasy-haired, greasy yeah. raw hot dog eating, corn nut eating. Not the most pleasant people to be you around. Know? Okay, and no offense to anybody who you know happens to like those things, but uh, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> well, if they were greasy haired, they had to be C plus plus. You know, guys. and and the temper tantrums. Oh my God! Like <laughs> I can't find the answer to this bug. Throw a book at the wall at the office. I mean, what's up with that? You know, I was an ex bartender coming in. You know, I think a uh, you know fairly uh, open minded person with a diverse background, and and I'm watching this guy with 
grease flying off his hair and a book throwing at the wall, and I'm thinking, what is going on? So, and I stayed. I still stayed. It didn't frighten me off, but I'll tell you, it was interesting. I thought, I've got a whole bunch of literature just waiting to come out in a book one day. It's case sensitivity in the language that drives one to throw a book at the wall. (laughs) Oh, no, I think in his case, it was the temp variables that were global. Ooh. (laughs) He didn't realize that you shouldn't do that, and he couldn't find which temp variable. He blew a head gasket, eh? <laughs> yeah, he blew a head gasket, exactly. So you got any just absolutely unbelievable stories that of anything that you've encountered? Gosh, picking one is going to be tough. You know how that goes. Well, I mean, I can tell you a funny one when you talk about women, because I'm like the farthest thing from a feminist. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm very happy to be a woman in this industry and I definitely know that I'm usually one of the only if the only speaker when I go to a conference but mm-hmm. um, you know I'm proud of that and I think that's great and I think it's just a matter of I think women in general it's not that they're excluded but there just have been less people interested and I think that's growing because even when I teach classes now I see a higher number coming in yeah. but I get a real kick out of Things like I went to a European conference last uh, November and I walked into the speaker room, you know, and typically before uh, a conference, because I'm so busy, you know, I'm still sort of preparing some of my my last minute details and so on. So I, I came into the speaker room right before the speaker meeting, you know, agenda meeting where we get right. introduced and so on. And I'd never met any of the other speakers. And I sat down in the room and a couple of people are in there, and this one guy looks up at me and says, so is your husband speaking here? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like I said, I, said I, don't, no, is your wife? I get a kick out of it more than anything because who cares? You know, I, I know that, that maybe I don't necessarily fit the bill, but uh, uh, I just kind of looked at him and said, oh, well, actually, I am. I'm talking about reflection, security, blah, blah, blah. I went on the list, and he just said, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so that was pretty funny. That's funny. A lot of little things like that happen. It's unexpected, you know. We're just so used to seeing mm-hmm. guys with greasy hair and hot dog breath. Well, but and... not so much anymore. I mean, I think that was so more in the beginning. You know, you've got... Uh, well, the speakers people... aren't like that, that's for sure. Yeah, no, because typically if you're going to be a presenter, you already know how to communicate with people. You know how to clean your fingernails and things right. like that. You know? right. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's but it's such a it's such an interesting group of people. You know, when I meet other speakers, I always uh, really enjoy hearing their backgrounds and and where they're coming from because yeah. everybody comes from a different starting point. You know, how did you become a speaker? You know, like I, I think I approached uh, uh, Richard Shaw at one of the conferences in Irvine. I'd been writing for many years. Uh, excuse me, never... excuse me. That's Richard Hale Shaw. Right. Sorry. I do believe. Um, well, we're on a two-name level. Oh, okay. So um, anyway, I went to uh, the VCDC, I think it was, up in Irvine, which is close to where I live, and uh-huh. I asked him if he needed any female speakers because I noticed there weren't any on the ballot. And basically, I'd been teaching and speak- and doing a lot of writing, and you know, he invited me the next time, so he kind of gave me my start in speaking. I ended up going to Boston and hmm. I think it was 98 to the VCDC there. And, wow. uh, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, you meet so many interesting people. This conference in November, was that .NET 1 by any yes. chance? Was, did you see Nicholas Landry there? I certainly did. I certainly did. He, was he with he, his superstar friend there? Oh, you're right. Sarah Kana. Right. Sarah Kana. 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 Yeah, he said, I'll be back. 
<laughs> and we all uh, kind of, yeah. Actually, he was a lot of fun to uh, speak with, too. He's the one in Montreal. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, he went, I didn't, I wasn't there when they met Sahakana. Okay. But uh, he told me all about it, yes. Yeah, he told us about it, too. In fact, there's some pictures on our website with yeah, Sarah. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Yeah. That's great. Sarah, we're probably most proud of that. Out of all the shows, you know, we that we got Sarah Connor on our lousy show, somehow. Mm. That was a joke, actually. We'll put some crickets in there. But, um, crickets? Yeah. Get the laugh we'll get track Get the now. laugh track. <laughs> Actually, um, oh, never mind. I won't tell that story. Oh, come on, please. No, come on. Please, come it's, on. It's, it's, it's really not a programmer story. I don't care. <laughs> tell it. Tell it. We want to hear it. Okay. So in my you know, earlier programming days at this company, our CTO was uh, really kind of more of a father figure to all of us. You know, He really kind of took us under his wing and pushed us to be great. And he turned us into workaholics, you know, but I mean, at the end of the day, I, I, I thank him for that because that's probably where I got my start. Uh -huh. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm sort of giving you a scenario here because I was new to San Diego. So I, I, like I said, I backpacked it out here behind all my stuff behind my Jeep and I lived alone here and I, uh, worked for this company, but I did a lot of work out of home because, um, our office was very small. It was a startup company. Mm -hmm. One day I'm at home and power goes out so I'm thinking to myself okay um, I can't do some work that I said I would get done so I'm gonna go ahead and just run some errands or something like that so I go out back and I put the garbage in the trash and when I'm out back I look uh, and I see this guy out by the phone wires and I said to the guy hey what are you doing and he was one of my neighbors but I just didn't know him and he says well you know they're coming <laughs> and I said Excuse me? This is no joke. And he says, they're coming, our twins, and they think they're going to take over our bodies, and we're going to be gone, but it's not going to happen. I'm not going to let it happen. Was there a bunch of mushrooms on the ground under his feet? No, <laughs> but this guy had, like, these big pliers, and he was out by the phone wires. And I was no. thinking, okay. I, it didn't clue into me at the time that he was by the phone wires, but this is what ended up happening. So I go back into my apartment, and I call my, my boss, and he didn't answer, so I spoke to one of the other developers, and I just said to him, you know, I'm not going to be able to email you that thing. My power's out, and there's this guy outside. Click, the phone goes dead. So they hear me in this half sentence, the phone goes dead, but I didn't really think anything of it, and I decide, okay, I'm just going to go do my grocery shopping. So I get out of the apartment, and I go. <laughs> and, and they I heard there's this guy outside. Click. <laughs> yeah, this guy outside who's kind of weird and Click. Quick. So, so then I, I go around, I'm driving, I go to my groceries, I come on the way back, I got to get gas, I stop at the gas station, and I hear, Michelle, Michelle. <laughs> and I look over, and lo and behold, is this guy that worked for us, John, and he's on the phone, at the payphone at the gas station, which is around the corner from my house. And I said, oh, hey, what are you doing here? He goes, man, Arthur wants to talk to you, and this was, you know, our CTO. Mm -hmm. Long story short... Basically, when the phone went dead, they got worried. Yeah. Arthur says, get down to her house, find out what's going on. <laughs> they go to my house, my apartment, and he could see in the window that the lights were out, but it looked like I had an open purse on the table or something, like I'd left in a rush. Uh-huh. 
So they're freaking out, thinking something's <laughs> happened to me, like I've been abducted. <laughs> I'm out tooling around, buying my groceries, no big deal. And, uh, and they were just completely, you know, worried that something was going on. And then I find out after the fact that this guy was indeed cutting the phone wires and he had forgotten to take his uh, meds. He was schizophrenic. Oh, man. So he was promptly evicted from that little area. And it was actually a really nice area where I lived, too. It was pretty funny. Wow. So, anyway, it was kind of unrelated to programming. It was a narrow escape. I worked for. <laughs> kind of like a family thing, you know. Well, it actually, all worried about you. If he was a programmer, you know, and and he could have been with that mental condition, then, it, uh, very easily. Then very it might easily. have fit right in. Yeah, doesn't a lot of brilliance come from that? Yeah, he could have gotten a raise for a stunt like that. So, so, so what's a, about, what's a service level agreement? Well, the interesting thing about getting service level agreements built for your company is that it is actually a very technical process because you really need to kind of dig into every point in the architecture and what the performance is, is at each level okay. and come up with measurements for that that somehow can be automated into reports so that you can prove to your clients on a quarterly or monthly basis that you're meeting your availability targets. Oh, okay. So it's actually kind of a, a cool process that takes you beyond just writing the code, uh, although it includes a lot of of, of that process because you sometimes need to, you know, dump some data to a database for benchmarks. Right. Um, but it also takes you into the network architecture and how do you me measure, you know, the, the throughput, you know, at each point in the architecture. Hmm. So from a client's perspective, I mean, if you're um, talking about a 24 by 7 operation that has to support hundreds of thousands of transactions a month, and if, say, you're a bank, your decision is always going to be build or buy. Right. And believe me, you know, if the IT department is part of that decision, they're going to be hard-pressed for a buy decision because they're going to think, well, we could build it better. Mm -hmm. And even though they may not have technology experts sometimes, they still believe that. So you as a, you know, as a, as a person supplying a service that you know you can handle the load and gain this big client, you need to prove to them that you can really handle their transaction flow. And they're being the big bully on the street saying, well, my transaction flow is, you know, hundreds of thousands a day. I get it. So it's sort of like a formula. You can plug in that number and then see how it affects the performance of the rest of the system. Is that right. And it's not just a formula. It's more like um, documenting very in a very detailed way what the service levels are at each point. So, for right. example, of course, you're going to talk about, you know, your connectivity. Right. Um, you know, how many redundant T1 lines do you have and did you use different providers, for example? Um, you're going to talk about um, how do you monitor that connectivity. You're going to talk about uh, how much load can your web server take, how many connections can your database handle at once, what's the connection pooling, you know, able to manage, um, how many inserts per second can the database support, what's the footprint of an insert for your particular data you know, that kind of thing. So you're really analyzing all parts in the process, mm -hmm. and you're coming up with a document that maybe doesn't disclose any proprietary par parts of the process, but certainly discloses enough that the bank can read this document and say, okay, I'm fairly confident you know what you're doing, and I guess I can entrust my service to you and not worry that I'm going to lose my data. Yeah. So, Michelle, are there penalties involved if you don't meet that level of service? Yeah, they call it consequential loss, actually, and, and typically in the... It's <laughs> a nice name for it. Yeah, yeah um, typically in the service agreement, um, some entities will require that you put 
what will they get if you fail? And again, the interesting thing about that is if you think about availability requirements, I mean, again, if, if we want to look at the most difficult level to meet, you're going to talk about financial institutions, um, you know, any large corporation where the data they're entrusting to you is so critical to them that you really got to sell them on using your service. And that means you have to be between something like 99.9% and 100% availability, which means less than eight hours a month can be downtime um, hmm. to meet anywhere close to that availability. And less than, I'm sorry, less than one hour a month, actually. Less than eight would be for reasonable availability, like, say, 97%, 98%. And then if, if you look at that per year... Then you're looking at you know that times 12. Yeah. And okay. if you look at a single upgrade deployment to your service, how do you deploy a new upgrade to the service without bringing the site down? Well, that comes down to network architecture, right? Because you could actually architect it so that you can bring half of the redundant site down, deploy it there, and then bring that up and bring down the other half. And no, no, you there. just copy the DLL over the old one. It comes right. Right. <laughs> no DLL hell here. So, I mean, and that's another really nice thing about .NET, too, is that you don't have to reboot the application servers to right. deploy new configuration files, whereas a lot of those J2EE services have um, special, you know, property files and things like that that do require a reboot for the components to be recognized. Yeah. Now, I think that's a lesser problem with the J2EE compliant ones, but still, there are certain things that cause a reboot requirement. And sometimes you're talking about, you know, the need for anywhere between four and eight hours to do a complex deployment that might be requiring some QA effort and so yeah, on. Right. So you end up having to prove your ability to meet those those levels, and, and it becomes very important. So the client's perspective is, I'm the big bully. Prove to me you can handle it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And your perspective is, I know I can handle it, but now I've got to document it. So you need somebody very technical to go through the process and kind of go through, here's all the site monitoring tools we use, like SiteScope or something that pings all the different URLs and tells me and pages me, you know, when something goes wrong. And um, here's how quick I can um, fail over, you know, if, if this machine goes down, the other machine takes over in this many seconds. And I've tested that. And you have to test it quarterly and show them that you, you do this on a regular basis. It's very process-oriented, and right. it's actually kind of a pain. But uh, if you do it, you know, the exciting part about getting through this process, which we went through, is that you really learn a lot about, you know, your application and where you might have problems hmm. to scale. Hmm. So it's a good process to go through for anybody who's hosting. Where can somebody find out more about this stuff? Um, you know, this is the interesting thing. Service-level agreements are not really well-documented. I do have... Um, you know, maybe a couple of links I can give you sure. that, that I've been to over time, like I think tcp.org has some benchmark information and, okay. and a bit of a summary, but it's difficult to write a service level agreement because it's really tailored to your application. Sure. And there was a time that I bought, I think, an $800 package, and literally all it was was a bunch of lame documents that had virtually no information on writing a service level agreement. I mean, that's how little information is out there. So, Everything's a scam, isn't it? What's that? Everything's a scam, isn't oh, it? Oh, certainly. And, <laughs> and the thing is, is this, this group was probably capitalizing on the fact that there's very little information out there. Right. So, um, but I'm, I've got a, a little article that will probably go out in the newsletter in the next, probably not this month, but maybe next month. 
uh, great. Because while we were talking about this talk, it kind of gave me the idea. Oh, I should write an article about that. So. Any good programmer jokes, Michelle? How do you drown a blonde? How? Put a mirror in the bottom of the swimming pool. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. I have other jokes, but they're a little too rude. No, you know, we have the <laughs> power of the bleep, so go right ahead. So, oh no. no. Yeah, come on. Do it, do it. <laughs> come on. Go, go, go. This is turning more into comedy hour rather than uh, This is entertainment. Technology. Are you kidding? We don't learn anything on this show. It's all entertainment. Uh, I'm just showing my diversity, right? <laughs> so, I used to be a bartender, right? Right. Guy walks into a bar, and he's really had a rough day, and he says to the bartender, you know, I really need a stiff drink. He says, how about a shot of tequila? That'll do you. He says, no, no, no. Can't do tequila. How about something else? Okay, I'll make you a nice stiff margarita with a little salt on the rim. He's like, no, you don't understand. That's got tequila in it. Can't do tequila. Oh, come on. Everybody has a rough time every once in a while. Now, last time I did tequila, I really had a bad night. I mean, I blew chunks. He says, everybody gets sick every once in a while. It's no big deal. He says, chunks is my dog. Oh, jeez. You can't air that. <laughs> you cannot air that. <laughs> Tell me you're not going to air that. No, we won't. <laughs> well, we'll save it for the blooper show. Michelle, yeah. listen, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show and telling us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it certainly has. It's I been heard good about the show up. after you had Duval from iDesign on here. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I, I knew you were doing it probably also from Dave McCarter, who you know. Yep, yep. And, uh, yeah. So, so we ought to get Dave on, too. I was too. excited to hear from you. Yeah, you should get Dave. Oh, he's full of great, great thoughts. He's got a lot of great stories, I know, yeah, too. Yeah, he does. He does. Yep. Excellent. All right, well, thanks a lot for stopping by. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. All right, we'll catch Talk you on the flip soon. side. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.